Thank you so much for joining us today. We're continuing in a series called Jesus Is. And in our first weeks, we talked about how Jesus is Savior. And today we're going to be talking about how Jesus is priest. Now, for most of us, the whole idea of priest is kind of a, a foreign or an alien concept, especially those of us who grew up Protestant or those of us who grew up Dutch Reformed. There aren't a lot, thank you so much, aren't a, lot, a, lot, a lot of priests that we have to give um, kind of leeway to in our lives. But if you've ever had a chance to visit a holy location in another tradition, you've got a different appreciation for priests. I've had opportunity to go to the Holy Land on a couple different occasions. And some of you know that like in, in historical pictures or popular pictures of the skyline of Jerusalem, you've got this, this golden dome. That's the Dome of the Rock. And that's a Muslim holy place. But it sits on top of the Temple Mount, which is a holy place to all Jews throughout history. And truly observant Jews will not, they'll, they'll pray at the wailing wall at the bottom, but they won't ascend the ramp to the top of the Temple Mount for fear that they will step on a place where the temple may have been. Because if they do that, as people who aren't priests, they will desecrate that site. And so out of honor and respect for God, they'll, they give that a wide berth. So if you're an observant Jew, you, you respect the holiness, the sanctity of that site. Now, the, the, the Dome of the Rock, you, you as a non-Muslim can go and walk around that. But if you're not part of that tradition, you can't go inside. There is a, there is a gate that bars you access. So if you're an observant Jew, you can't go in certain places out of respect. If you're not a Muslim, you can't go in certain places because you're not allowed. A few years ago, I had a chance to visit Nepal. And there was a very, a, a very beautiful and intricate Hindu temple at the top of a mountain. We got a chance to climb up it. We got a chance to see it. But we weren't allowed inside because we weren't priests. We didn't have access to that terrain. And later in that trip, we went to a, a kind of a very picturesque town out in, the, out in the plains of Nepal called Lumbini. And Lumbini, historically, it traditionally is the birthplace of the Buddha. And so we got a chance to visit a few temples there. But again, we weren't allowed to go inside. Why? Because we weren't priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents the perfection of God, the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, or a, any other deity to the people. And then what the priest does is he goes back and takes the offerings or the prayers of the people and represents them to God. So the priest is kind of a, a broker between the ordinary and the extraordinary, between the secular and the sacred, between the daily and the divine. And when we look throughout scriptures, we see that the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a new kind of priest. He is the ultimate go-between between people and God. But to fully appreciate that truth, we need a clear picture of what the priestly tradition that Jesus came out of was like. For hundreds of years, the priests in the Jewish tradition shared a few core characteristics. And they were, all of those priests were internally broken. All of them were externally whole, and all of them had limited access to God. They're all internally broken. The first priests, they were all human. They struggled with doubt and insecurity and pride and a litany of other sins and temptations. And even though they represented the highest level of spiritual authority, their spiritual brokenness made them horribly unreliable. Sometimes their mistakes came with catastrophic consequences. Moses, a famous leader of the Israelites, commissioned the first priests. And for him, it was unique because they were all family. His brother Aaron was the head priest, and his nephews, uh, Aaron's sons, were the first generation of priests for that nation. 
But from the very beginning of the priestly office, priests struggled to get things right. We read this in Leviticus chapter 10. It says that Aaron, the chief priest, and his son, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, and they put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy, and in the sight of all of the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, failed to follow God's very clear instructions for offering incense. They disregarded God's commands in favor of their own preferences. But they weren't alone in their rebellion. Generations later, we read about another famous leader in Israel's history, Samuel and his sons, Hopni and Phinehas. Hopni and Phinehas flouted the rules regarding animal sacrifice. They tweaked the regulations for their comfort and convenience. And they took part of the meat that was supposed to be offered back to the people or to God after it had been consecrated, and they ate it for themselves. And as a result, tragedy followed for their family as well. When human priests operate from their internal brokenness, they eventually misrepresent who God is to the people, and they mistreat people for their own ends. So they fail God, and they fail the people that they have been commissioned to represent towards God. And if the first priests were internally broken, it's also important to remember that they were externally whole. When the priests were on duty, they looked the part. They had traditional robes and a spotless appearance. In fact, the Old Testament law required that every priest who served was free from physical defect. Leviticus 21 describes it in graphic detail. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. You don't get to offer sacrifices. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man who has got a crippled foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or dwarf, or who has any eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. Now, when you put that stipulation in place, you have to recognize that it would have been possible that every generation of priests had men who were excluded from service. And if you were born with any of those challenges, you were disqualified at birth. Or if you suffered an accident or a trauma, you could be disqualified later in life. I had, like, for a half a second, when I was 12 years old, fantasized about being a pilot in the U.S. Air Force and realized that my vision disqualified me from doing so because the U.S. Air Force website says that you must have normal color, color vision. I'm colorblind with reds and greens. I'm out. Apparently when people are doing, like, dogfights in the sky or running, like, life-threatening missions, they can't have you mistaking one color for another. Now, so, so I'm out. And guess who else is? About 8% of all other men in this country who are also statistically colorblind. Only the perfectly presentable get to join. Everybody else is a liability. So the priests, even though they were internally broken, were required to look externally whole. And then finally, 
human priests had limited access to God. Leviticus 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So the way that the Old Testament tabernacle and ultimately the temple worked out is this way. There were courts around the temple. And the outer courts were the courts of the Gentiles. And then there was a court Jewish women could come into. And then inside of that, there was a court where the Jewish men could come. But inside of that court, the only people who were allowed to pass that point were the priests. And the temple building was kind of like a long hall. And it was split up into two sections. The first section was called the holy place. And any of the priests could come and minister there. But then there was a thick curtain. And on the other side of that curtain was called the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's tangible presence on this earth was. And God is saying to Moses, Aaron can't walk in there whenever he feels like it. There are prescribed times, traditions, and rituals that are required in order for him to approach a holy God. The high priest could only get, go into that holy, holiest of places called the Holy of Holies, only go in there once a year. Some of you may have heard of a Jewish tradition called Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. That was the only time the priests were allowed to have immediate access to God. And the high priest could only be born into that role. All of the rest of the priests, the inner priests, they never got past the inner sanctuary. In fact, the closest they could get to God was that outer room, the holy place to offer incense. And some scholars believe that people like Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, that given the numbers of the vast number of priests in the country at that time, they would only get to go into the holy place once in a lifetime. High priest gets to go into the holiest of places once a year. Ordinary priests only get into the outer section of that holy temple once in their entire existence. So the whole idea of being able to come close to the presence of God was foreign. Not just for the people who weren't priests, but even for the people who were. Now, when the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a new kind of priest, it's saying so against this backdrop. And when we look at Jesus, we realize that he takes this whole model of priesthood as it has been prescribed and flips it on its head. Why? Because Jesus is internally whole, he is externally broken, and has unlimited access to the Father. Let's look at these passages together. Jesus is internally whole. Hebrews 7 says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the Levites were the priestly tribe, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? Writer of Hebrews is saying, like, if the Old Testament model was good, why did Jesus have to come and supersede it? He goes, why was there a priest, a need for a priest in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? He goes, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of his power for an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And if you're at all like me and you read this passage, you go, who is this Melchizedek character and why does he keep showing up in the story? In order to gain that context, we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. 
And the readers of Hebrews would have been able to connect these dots more rapidly than we would. The story says this, after Abram, who would later be known as Abraham, returned from defeating Ketelamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram had just come back from a combat a rescue operation where he had rescued his nephew Lot and all of his family members and servants from some kings that had kidnapped him. And when he's coming back victorious from that battle, he has this encounter with Melchizedek. And then Abram gives him a tenth. He gives him a tithe. He gives him 10% of all of the spoils of battle that he's just stumbled across. Melchizedek actually literally translated means king of righteousness. Melchizedek is not a peripheral character who's a nice guy. He is a prototype for the Messiah. He blesses Abram. And if you're going to bless somebody, it means that you stand above or outside of them in this tradition. And Abraham acknowledges that Melchizedek is above him when he gives him a tithe, 10% of the wealth that he has. Melchizedek's character, his very name means righteousness, points to the person of Jesus. Melchizedek's origin, it says that he is king of Salem, and Salem translated means peace. That God comes from a place of peace. It points to Jesus, his Messiah, and ultimately his gift. What does Melchizedek bring with his offering? He brings bread and wine, which again is another foreshadowing of when Jesus is going to break bread and offer wine to his disciples, declaring that he is the bread of life. And that his blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Everything about Melchizedek, his character, his name, his origin, his gifts, are all pointing to a day when Jesus will come in that, in that vein, in that stream. Jesus and Melchizedek are both perfect representations of God to the people and of the people to God. Nothing in either one of them misrepresents God or mistreats people. Melchizedek and by extension, Jesus are the anti-Abihu. They're the, the non-Nadab priests. Jesus is unique as a priest because he is internally whole. His motives are pure and his hands are clean at every turn. Jesus is a different priest because he's internally whole. He's a different priest because he is externally broken. Jesus, at the point of his death, willingly submitted to the violence of his enemies. During his imprisonment, he was beaten beyond recognition. One of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, predicted this moment when he said, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. The first iteration of priests had to appear perfect to represent a perfect and transcendent God, but with his wounds, Jesus identifies with anyone who has ever felt wounded. An invincible God takes on human flesh to identify with the fragility that you and I feel. Jesus was both fully God and fully man so that he could bleed, sweat, and weep the way that you and I bleed, sweat, and weep. 
Jesus has walked where we walked. He has seen what we've seen. And he knows every emotion that we feel. The writer of Hebrews says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, meaning us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement or reconciliation for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Let me ask you a very personal question. Did you feel tempted this week? I'll go first. Yes. I felt tempted yesterday. My wife and I were at a swim meet, and I had mismanaged our time, like I always do. And I had assumed that it would be done by, a, like, I had, I, was, I had budgeted three hours for the swim meet. I was wrong. Uh, it was like 3.45, and I needed to get home and take my other daughter to a tennis match, that she was, or, 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 like a tennis project that she was supposed to be at. And I found myself at the end of the swim meet getting increasingly agitated. And there, there were times where I was... I had in my watch, I was like, okay, there's four more races, two minutes per race, we should be done in eight minutes. Wrong, because there was like 19 heats for every single one of those races. And I found myself glaring at slow children being like, hey, I got places to be. Hurry this up already. I'm like, what coach let this kid in at all? Like, they're, they're struggling to make it out of the pool. I am about to call a lifeguard. Come on, tick tock tick, people. I got places to be. And Kelly was like, what is the matter with you? She's like, these are seven-year-old seven girls. They're, they're, let them learn to swim. And I'm like, yeah, but they're ruining my day. <laughs> like, my, my impatience, my commitment to my own agenda was making me, like, look past the humanity of other people who mattered not only to their parents but to God. Have you, in any portion of your week, don't raise your hand, been tempted to act in ways that you knew you should not act or think things that you know to be untrue? And how many of us have fallen into a trap that says, it is my job through willpower and right thinking and self-help to overcome all of my temptations on my own? See, many of us have this twisted view of God that says, God just kind of throws us into the arena and says, cross your fingers and hope you can gut it out. When the book of Hebrews says what? It says, because Jesus suffered, he was tempted in every way that we were tempted. Why? So we could identify with us at an abstract level? No, so that he could help us when we were tempted. And how many of us in the course of this last week were tempted and said, Lord, I need help. Or we overcame temptation and we said, yay me. Or we succumbed to temptation and we said, I'm an utter invisible failure. God probably hates me. Both of which are the wrong answers. Because both put us at the center of the universe rather than starting with Jesus as Savior and King and Priest. Where were you tempted this week? Were you out of your own struggle with fear and pain? Were you tempted to escape the reality that God has you in by numbing or self-medicating behaviors? Were you tempted because of deep woundedness towards anger and bitterness? Were you tempted because of your loneliness and betrayal to pursue cheap imitations 
of intimacy? Or were you tempted because of just the ordinary burdens of life or your deep grief? Were you tempted toward to despair of life at all? And in your moment of temptation, how many of us said, Lord, I need help. Fully believing that he can help and wants to help. See, when we don't view Jesus as the perfect priest that he is, we fall into the trap of thinking that we have been destined and cursed to fight all of our battles on our own. One of the chief lies of the enemy is that the only tool that we have to fight temptation is our own willpower, which splinters like a broken crutch every time we lean on it. The high priest of Jesus says, who can you count on to help you when you are tempted in any way, at any time, in any place, at any hour? Jesus. Jesus went through everything that he went through so that we could know we're not alone and that he could help us reframe reality, say no to what is false, and say yes to the fact that he is worthy every time we're in a pinch. Jesus is a new kind of priest because he is internally whole. And for our sakes, he allowed himself to be violently disfigured. So that whenever we hurt, we could know that Jesus knows what it is to hurt. So Jesus internally whole, externally broken, and the final difference that he has with the priests of his day is that rather than having limited access to God, he has unlimited access to God. We read this in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And he didn't need to sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. I want you to remember this line. If you don't remember anything else we talk about today, remember this line. It says that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Always lives to intercede for us. That word intercede means to go in between people who are in need and people who need help. Scriptures tell us that when Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, which means that he has unlimited and perpetual access to God. Have you ever thought about the fact, and, and this is confirmed in other parts of the scripture as well, that says the Holy Spirit prays for us with groans and utterances. It says that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is representing us to the Father. How often? Every day. With how many of our needs? All of them. Do you know that Jesus is bringing the needs that you haven't even consciously confessed to him, to the Father on your behalf? Jesus is going to bat for you forever and always, even if you don't trust him, even if you're wallowing in your own fear and self-pity and bringing your needs to other people or other places rather than him. 
Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with trembling, trepidation, anxiety? No. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If Jesus is the perfect priest, how often do you and I have the ability to find mercy and receive grace? There's never a second in any day and there's not a single situation where we do not have access to boundless mercy and compelling grace. Because of Jesus, we don't have to wait for appointed times or festivals to approach the Father. We don't have to depend on human brokers that tell us where the fences are. We can come directly to God anywhere at any time.